Um, welcome, everyone. Looking forward to learning with all of you over the next couple of hours. Uh, I think some of you have been in, in, in Shear with me for the last month, but some, some of you I haven't learned with, so, so looking forward again. Uh, the topic, we'll just say a couple words about the topic, is the end of humility. And I think uh, when, I, when I say the end, I mean that in three different ways. So first of all, uh, our, we're, we're jumping to the end of the parak. It's really going to be focused on the last uh, three lines, essentially, of our parak and of Masecha Sota overall. And uh, number one, you can say that, you know, you did the whole parak because you started at the beginning and you got to the end, although hopefully you'll fill in the middle at some point. Um, and in that sense, it's the end, and, and uh, the end of our parak talks about this issue of humility. But when, when I talk about the end of humility, there are also, there's still two different two different factors here. One is we're going to be talking about the historical end of humility that our Mishnah and our Gemara talk about how after Rebbe, around uh, the year 200 or so, uh, when Rebbe passed away, the, the, the Mishnah and Gemara say that, that uh, well, and the Mishnah presumably not written by Rebbe himself because it refers to his passing, but the Mishnah says that humility ended. So we're going to try to figure out exactly what, what that means and the Gemara objects to it, but we're also going to figure out what uh, what the goal, what the what the meaning, what the significance of humility is, uh, which is not a simple thing. There are several different views, and as we'll see, different interpretations of this gemara will point to different meanings as to what the ultimate goal or what the what it means to have humility, uh, and and that uh, that end of humility as well. So that's that's our plan. Uh, most of our sources are going to be on our gemara on that that passage at the end. It should all be on the handout. So first, the Mishnah, the Gemara, a bunch of commentaries on that passage in Gemara. And then at the end of the handout, there's a reference to a few different cases, a few different uh, other sources that will help us explicate that, some of which are actually timely, are, are tied to uh, the Hurban, the destruction of the Mikdash. Uh, and we, you know, of course, we find ourselves in the nine days right now. There, the handout has the first three pages are, are the uh, sources in their primary form, and then there's uh, translations of the Hebrew sources following that. So, uh, you know, up to you whether, uh, what, what makes the most sense to work with, but that's how the handout is structured. We're gonna have about an hour of Seder now, where uh, I think Michael's gonna break you up into Harusa's uh, more or less at random. Um, and the goal is to work through, get through what you can on the source sheet over the next hour. And then uh, we'll have about an hour, uh, maybe a drop less, of Shear going through the sources, trying to develop some of these ideas together prior to the closing. So that's the plan. Um, I, I, uh, I'll be available for the next hour if you want, uh, you know, if any Harusa wants to uh, summon me or whatever, whatever it's uh, called uh, using the Zoom feature, um, I'm happy, happy to pop in if I can be helpful. But with that said, uh, you know, good luck on the learning over the next hour and uh, let's, all, let's all think about humility and its end together. Okay, so so let's jump in. We, we mentioned before that when we talk about the end of humility, we're talking about the end of our parak. We're talking about the historical end of humility, as, as the Mishnah and Gemara put it. Uh, and we're also talking about what exactly the goal of humility, humility is, what exactly it means to be humble, and how that manifests itself. So let's start by going through going through the relevant Mishnah and Gemara on Daf Memtes at the end at the end of our parak, and uh, and we'll we'll go from there. We'll try to understand uh, what's going on. I guess I'm not going to call on people. Uh, you know, I didn't I didn't warn you in advance that you'd be cold called or anything. So I'll I'll read through the Mishnah myself. But please, everyone, follow along inside if you can. So the Mishnah starts bepumus shel aspasianus gazrelatros chasanim erus in the Palamas, in the, uh, the war or the polemic, the Greek word can mean either, and just like in English, uh, right, the, a war or a polemic uh, comes from this word pulmus. So in the, in the war and ensuing polemic of Vespasian, the Roman general and emperor, they, so following his attacks on Jerusalem, they made a xera, they, they uh, made a decree not to wear uh, various crowns of, uh, for a groom and about certain celebrations of uh, engagement. And this is part of a list that we're going to see part of uh, that, uh, that as various degrees of destruction of Jerusalem and the temple took place uh, in, in, the, in the end of Bayesheni, there were various decrees 
to sort of move away from happiness and we'll also see to move away from Greek culture in a certain way. So that's the next line. But Pomo shall, shall teach us in the polemic following the war of Titus, also general and emperor, Gazrael Atros Kalos, they made exer against crowns of, uh, of uh, brides at weddings. Vishalo Yelamid Adam Espino Yevanis. And that a person shouldn't teach his child Greek. You shouldn't teach Greek or maybe Greek, Greek uh, language or maybe Greek philosophy. We'll see that uh, in, in, in a bit. And the, the Mishnah goes on with, uh, with a couple of more uh, xeros, a couple of more decrees that they, they made in reaction, in response to Roman destructions of, of uh, Yerushalayim and the Mikdash. And then the Mishnah transitions, uh, transitions to a, a different or maybe not so different point. Misha Mace, Rabbi Meir, Butlu, Moshle, Mishal, and when Rabbi Meir died, that was the end. That was the, the, uh, the last of those who made good parables. Mishames ben Azai, Batlu Ashakdanim, when ben Azai died, those who were diligent uh, ceased. Mishames ben Zoma, Batlu Adarshanim, when ben Zoma died, the, those, the exegetes uh, were stopped. Mishames Riyakiva, Batlu Kavod Torah, the honor of Torah uh, stopped when Rabbi Akiva passed away. It's a process of devolution, as all of these Torah sages passed away. They were the last of their kind, the last who represented these values. And uh, in, their, in their absence, they really were missing. People of action uh, stopped at the time of Piety, the pious people stopped after the time of Riosi, uh, the small. And he was the smallest of all the, of all the Hasidim, of all the pious. And yet after his time, still, uh, you know, there is still a, a, a tangible loss of, of piety. The splendor, the glory of wisdom was lost when Riochem and Zakai died. The honor of Torah passed uh, after Gamliel Zakain's passing. And purity and asceticism stopped as well. The glory of priesthood stopped at the time of Yishmael ben Pavi. And now, the most important line for us, Mishames Rebbe, when Rebbe, Rabbi Huda Anasi, the editor of the Mishnah, died, that was the end of humility and fear of sin. Now, obviously, uh, you'll say, well, you know, how could Rebbe have written this? You know, he's the author of the Mishnah, what he put it in the line after he died. Uh, so this is one of the proofs uh, for those uh, interested in these questions. One of these proofs that not every line in the Mishnah was, was from Rebbe. It seems pretty clear that someone after Rebbe included lines like this, or even included some lines formulating Rebbe's opinion in the third person, right? Rabbi Huda Hanasi said this, that's presumably someone else. Rabbi Huda Hanasi died, and the result was X, presumably was not written by him. Fine, so our, we, there are two parts to this Mishnah. The first part, as was said, was the destruction of Yerushalayim and the Mikdash and various decrees that were made in response to sort of limit both happiness, to limit uh, celebration at weddings, and to limit Greek, to limit the influence of Greek language and, and or culture. And then the second half is almost in parallel. As the temple is destroyed, and there's a loss of, of various things. Also, as these rabbis pass, there's a loss of certain values along the way. Of course, different. There's no zera, um, and it wasn't, you know, it's expected, obviously, that rabbis die and that things change over time. But still, there's two parallel losses, one loss corresponding to the temple, to the mikdash, and one loss corresponding to uh, great rabbis who die. Just jumping ahead to source number two, to our Gemara, to the Gemara that talks about it, uh, it gives a little bit of the background of the story about why Shalom Yelamed Espino Yivanis, why not to teach Greek? Why was that a a, an appropriate response to, uh, the, to, uh, the, the, to Titus or to other, other uh, Greco-Roman attacks? So the, the, the history shifts a bit earlier. The Gemara says, When the different uh, Hasmonean houses fought one another, which seems to be a bit, a bit earlier than Titus, but either way, it's connected. Um, two different generals from the Hasmonean kingdom were on two sides of the walls of Jerusalem, right? Uh, uh, Hercules was besieging Aristobulus. Uh, despite the siege, the whole idea of a siege is to not provide any resources for inside to sort of starve out the people inside. And despite the siege, since both sides were pro-temple, 
right? They both were Hashmonaim, Hasmonians. They would, oh, every day they'd send over a, uh, uh, they'd send over a money on the one hand, and then they'd send over sheep to bring the carbon tamid, to bring the daily sacrifice in the temple. There was one elder there who knew the wisdom of Greek, or maybe the, the uh, wisdom of the Greek language. There's a whole dispute about this. We're not going to get into it now. He, uh, he sort of whispered, he hinted to them something in Greek. He said, as long as the people inside are bringing the sacrifices, they're dealing with the service in the temple, you're not going to win the war. It's so powerful. This idea of continuing the temple service is so powerful that it's not like we're fighting the war, you know, fight the war as if there's, uh, as if there's no tummit and bring the tummit as if there's no war or whatever, whatever Churchill would say in context. Um, that, you know, th- that doesn't work. You need, to, you need to cancel the tummit because of the war. The two are related. As long as they have that, uh, that national energy surrounding and pride surrounding the carbon tummit, you won't win. And lamachar shuslohem dinar mekupa vehelohem chazir. The next day, instead of sending over the sheep in return for the money, they sent over a pig. Obviously, you're not going to bring a pig as a carbon. In uh, remarkable symbolism, the pig on its way up sticks its hoof in the wall and creates this earthquake. The, the whole Israel shook for 400 parsa. They said at that time, Cursed is one who raises pigs. Okay, that seems to be a pretty, uh, pretty, pretty, pretty well followed uh, over the generations. Uh, it's not so traditional to raise pigs, but also cursed be one who teaches his child Greek. And again, there's a whole discussion: is this Greek language, and because it happened to be used in the story, it's the problem, or is it somehow the Greek philosophy that was the, you know, that was the idea behind this, uh, this cessation of the sacrifice? But whatever it is. There's an end of sacrifices, an end of karbanos, and the response is to cut off uh, the Jewish people from Greek culture. That's the rabbinic response. So hold that in the back of your heads for now, and let's now turn to analyze our line. Remember the Mishnah said, Mishames Rebbe Batlanav of Yerashet. When Rebbe died, that was the end, that was the, uh, the ceasing of both humility and fear of sin. So the Gemara is going to object to that. Mishames Rebbe Batlanav of Yerashet. Amar le Rav Yosef Latana. So this Mishnah, as with all Mishnahs, is recited by Atana. Atana can mean two things. It can either mean a rabbi of the Tanaitic period, the first two centuries CE, or Atana can be a person reciting the Mishnah later on. So in this case, it's the latter. Someone was reciting this Mishnah, and Rav Yosef was sitting in front of him and said, oh, actually, I have a correction, right? Lo tisni anava, ti'ika ana. When you're reciting this Mishnah, skip the last line, that when Rebbe died, there's no more, uh, there's no more humility. That's not true. So it's incorrect. So don't teach that line in the Mishnah, because the Ikana, there's me, I, Rav Yosef, am humble. So what do you mean that Rebbe was the last of the humble people? I myself am humble. So that's incorrect. Don't teach that line. Amar le Rav Nachman Latana, and similarly, Rav Nachman uh, also said to, to this reciter or a different reciter, Lo take out that line, take out the word uh, fear of sin. That after Rebbe, there were no more people who feared sin. I fear sin, so it's incorrect that Rebbe was the last of these, that that ceased uh, since his passing. I fear sin, so therefore that should be included. So again, we at least can read that line that we finished, even though I don't think any of the shirim got to the end, but you know, maybe there's still, uh, maybe that's a future, a future project. So what's very unusual about this last line in the Gemara? I guess I can only see most of you on screen, but yeah, raise your hand if you can, or, or chat to Veer. Um, it, well, on, on its face, it's very unusual because like they're claiming to be humble and that's not an act of humility. But in our in our Chavrusa, we thought of kind of like a different uh, reading that we didn't see in the Mepharshim. Well, let, let's, let's, let's start with the question. We'll get to some answers and people have a chance to suggest their own in a bit, right? But it's a, it's a, it's, it's a question that jumps out at you, right, Tavir, that, uh, you know, saying that you're humble, you know, saying, oh, you know, no one's humble anymore. What do you mean? I'm humble. I'm so humble. There's obviously something ironic about that uh, and, and maybe self-undermining, right? To say that you, you yourself are humble, probably humble people don't go around calling themselves humble. 
And yet that's how Rashi reads the Gemara, right? Without any note or any uh, indication that something is, is odd. He says, the ikana, shani anvisan, I'm humble. So I'm humble. So therefore, uh, you can't be, you know, don't say that no more humble people exist. There's me and there's no irony there. So it is possible, of course, that uh, the nature of irony and humor was different uh, in the time of Chazal. It's hard to know that for sure. Um, but certainly many, many, many people reading the Gemara, uh, traditional commentaries have noted this problem and they give, there's a host of solutions. I think there's six possible solutions on our handout. I think Dvir has another one, it sounds like, but let's, uh, let's open it up. Um, what, what, do, what do people want to suggest to, to point to some of, the, some of the responses? And I think we'll see some of the responses reread the Gemara in one way or another, and some of the responses redefine humility, right? Those are sort of the two tracks uh, to get around this, this uh, self-undermining uh, ironic point. So does someone want to throw out, uh, suggest one of the approaches that, that rereads the Gemara? That's always easier, right? You have, you have a source that seems problematic. Well, you didn't read it right. If you read it properly, there's no problem. Well, what are some rereadings of our Gemara compared to how we just read it? Jessica. So Rashi says, oh, their humility was different. Um, Sorry, which text? Well, which, uh, which, which? Um, Rashi, Rashi says, um, Shane and Vatan. Um, ah. Okay, interesting. Well, we, 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 we always had a conversation about whether it's Sha'ani and Vatan or whether it's Shane. Yeah, I, th I think you have to read it Sha'ani here. I think you have to read it Sha'ani because Rashi's paraphrasing that line, right? So Anna is the Sha'ani and uh, I think you have to, meaning if, if Rashi wanted to say this is a different form of humility, he might, he might have to spell that out a bit more. But uh, definitely, uh, definitely an interesting, uh, interesting reading and, and certainly some of the approaches will say that there, this is a different form or there is a different type of humility. So um, yeah, so other, other suggestions. What, uh, yeah, what, what are some ways of rereading the Gemara? Okay, Miriam. Uh, Anna is a person. Or well, we in fact first translated it as Anna, as in like Anna Hashem Hoshiana. So maybe like there is prayer, there is humility in prayer, could be another way of saying it. Okay, great. So, so uh, to reread the word Anna, right? Rashi says, Anna means she'ani, right? Ra'ana means me, and that's, that seems to be what it means. But there is a possibility of rereading Anna. I think Miriam, you gave two possibilities. Either it's a different person, or maybe it's, uh, you know, I, as I relate to God, almost in God's hands, and sort of removing the personhood to some degree. Um, so I didn't see that in the sources, but it could very well be. But what the, in terms of the first answer, the, the say Anna is a person, do you recall who, who suggests that answer? Divrei uh, Ariyahu, based on the graph. Yeah, writes uh, students' uh, notes on what the Gras said. So let's read that together. Source number eight. It's uh, really a fascinating, maybe the most interesting rereading, the most uh, surprising. So he quotes the Gemara, Mishames, Rebbe Batla, Navabiraschet, and I'm sorry about the quality of this, but uh, I don't think it exists in digital form. So it's, uh, it's a screenshot of the old scan um, on Hebrew books. Armelir of Yosef, Latana, Lotisnea, Nava, Deika, Na, and that's the Gemara. And he asks, Lich Orakasha, Haloze, Gufa, Havi, Gaiva. Isn't it itself uh, pride or, or uh, you know, being not so humble to say that you're humble? But here's the thing, there's a Yerushalmi that there is this Amora whose name is Anna. Right, so read that into the Gemara, Rabbi Yosef says, don't say that Rebbe was the last of the humble people because there's this fellow, I know, his name is Anna. He happens to be exceedingly humble. And, uh, and therefore, Rebbe wasn't the last one. Totally solves the problem, right? It's not, he's not talking about himself. Very, very simple. The only problem is, well, they're, they're, well, first of all, Anna usually means I. That's the first problem. But the other problem is, even if you accept that Anna might be a name, they actually people uh, struggle to find where this Anna is in the Yerushalmi. So some people say, well, maybe it's, you know, it's a different word that has a slightly different text, and maybe the Grah had a different version of the Yerushalmi somewhere and had Anna. But this seems a little bit of a stretch, both just in itself and especially in light of the fact that the Yerushalmi doesn't, our text of the Yerushalmi at least, doesn't have Anna anywhere. But that certainly is one way out, one way of rereading the Gemara. Anna doesn't mean me. It means some fellow named Anna. Okay, that's one. We're going to get a couple more. Um, 
Zoe, do you have a, uh, is that a hand raised? Yeah. That's a hand, yeah. Um, so the spot Emma suggests that the reason Rav Yosef is able to say this is that we have other examples of him being humble. So he left the position of Nazi to Rabbah, even though he was the one whose skills were more valued. So if you can, if, if you can show through your actions that you have been humble, then you can call yourself humble maybe. Okay, so the Sfas Emes actually has, has, makes two separate points. So one of them, Zoe, I think, is the, is, you know, the direction you were going, which is, um, he, right, he points out that the Gemara in Horios Yudalit says that Rabbi and Rav Yosef were both candidates for Nasi, for being sort of the head of the Sanhedrin or the head of the Jewish community, and, uh, and Rabbi gave it up, sorry, Rav Yosef gave it up to Rabbi, so that indicates humility. I think that's his proof for how we know that Rav Yosef is humble. But I think that's still, you know, that, that doesn't necessarily solve the problem because just because we know Rav Yosef was humble doesn't mean that Rav Yosef can, you know, that doesn't mean it would be humble for Rav Yosef to get up and say, look at me, I'm humble. So there's an extra piece that he, that he builds in. He quotes, he, he, he mentions that, uh, he says, He says, when it says there's no more humility, it doesn't mean that there's no humility at all. We're not talking about individual people you know, like the last human who ever was humble. We don't mean that. We mean, we mean in different generations, we moved from a humble generation in the time of Rebbe to now our, our generations are no longer humble. But it's not talking about individuals, right? Again, it doesn't say Rebbe was the last humble person. It says Misha Mace Rebbe. When Rebbe died, humility ended. It's not talking about one person. It's talking about the generation. So, Rebbe's generation was the last generation of humility. Rav Yosef says, I object. I object. Our generation is a generation of humility. How so? There's me. Okay, how does that solve the problem? So he goes on and explains that uh, uh, he says, um, Fine. He says, Rav Yosef and Rabba were both very humble people. And we know that, as Zoe said. We know that because... He even gave up his position. So they said, What does it mean there's me? They were so humble. Reviosi said, look, if I'm no better than the next guy. If I'm humble, probably everyone else is humble. So that's what means. It means not that I'm unusually humble. I'm humble like anyone else. So, uh, and, and of course, that's not true because Reviosi was much more humble than other people. But precisely because he was so humble, he didn't realize how unrepresentative he was of his generation. So he said, you know, no more humility. That's not true. There is humility because look, I'm, a, I'm the average and I'm humble. So probably everyone else is humble. Just finish the piece. And by the way, that means Rav Yosef is wrong, right? Because he's not representative. He's so humble that he thinks that the generation is humble and that's not true. So that's another rereading. The rereading is we're not talking about the individual. We're talking about the generation. Rav Yosef mistakenly thought that he's representative of his generation and that they're all humble, but actually it's not true. He himself is humble, but precisely because he's humble, he didn't realize how special he was. It really, it's like a little, a uh, little bit inception there, a little bit uh, like a mind-bending uh, shot there. But very interesting piece of the of the Spas MS, um, building on these two points. Number one, we know Rav Yosef is humble, and number two, that humility. Uh, actually, you know, sort of blocked his ability to understand the generation, which is what this teaching is actually about. Uh, Rami. That really fits with the, I don't remember which commentator said that he acted like one of his students. Ah, uh -huh. okay. He considered himself like one of his students, almost. Ah, uh -huh. okay, yeah, I guess that would, right, that would also be a sign of humility. Uh, Rami, I think you had your hand up. Yeah, I was just gonna say, I mean, isn't it a little bit of a contradiction to, like, I feel like humility, humility would normally imply you have sort of an extra, uh, extra awareness, awareness of other people and sort of a, le a lessened awareness of yourself. So wouldn't it sort of be like, how could you be humble if you're not even aware that everyone else is not humble? Like, that sort of seems like a contradiction. Um, that's interesting, right? So I guess what the Svasemis could say is, despite, you know, he, uh, maybe humility is sometimes hard to see. And it's easy to see your own humility or lack thereof. It's harder to see other people's humility because, you know, and maybe you always give them the benefit of the doubt. And uh, since if he assumes he's nothing special, then everyone else too. But yeah, it's, it's an interesting point that we're, the presumption here is not just that he thought he was humble, but also that he was a little clueless about everyone else, right? That's, it's a fair critique of the, of the Spas MS here, one of the weaknesses, I think. Yeah. Um, okay, Dvir. 
Um, so what, what we said in our Harusa was um, like Anav represents uh, Moshe and Moshe's project of uh, finishing, uh, putting together the Torah. And so what the sentence is really saying is a debate about Rabbi Yehuda Nasi represents, is that the end of Moshe's project? Is the end of Moshe's project that he did, Moshe did uh, Torah Shebikhtav and Rabbi Yehuda Nasi finished Torah Shebaalpeh? Or are we able to say that, no, we can continue Torah Shebaalpeh into the Amorim and into later generations? A very creative reading, right? Uh, I guess sort of anava being like a code word. Anava doesn't mean humility at all. It just means, it means Torah. It means uh, completing Torah Shabal Peh, Torah Shabal and continuing that project. Interesting. I, I haven't seen that shot. I think, I think the challenge would be getting from Anava to Torah, meaning usually we assume those are two separable things, right? One can teach Torah and, you know, be humble, more humble, less humble. One can be humble and teach more or less Torah. So why would it use that term? But it, it's an interesting uh, intertextual connection there that, that you're reading. We'll see some of the other uh, answers here. We'll see that redefine humility also talk about Moshe. So Moshe is certainly a relevant figure. I think there's one, one more maybe approach, one or, yeah, one more approach that rereads the Gemara in a sense, or has a different angle, sort of a twist, uh, that allows Rav Yosef to say that, uh, you know, that, that, that he somehow proves humility. Uh, Liz. Um, so the Mira who we looked up and we're pretty sure it's Finitziv, um, says that there's a difference between like anava, meaning humility, and shvelut alev, meaning like low self-esteem. That what it's talking about is not sort of seeing yourself as not worthy of something or being the kind of person who would never say like um, stepping up, but the way that Rav Yosef behaves with other people is not with sort of pride or haughtiness. So you can in fact be the kind of person who is humble and respectful and doesn't put yourself above other people and also name the fact that you're humble. Okay, great. Um, I think we're, I'm going to hold off on getting into more detail on that just because that's, that's one of the redefinitions of humility. But yeah, that's definitely a great, one of the great answers here. Um, but we'll, and we'll, we'll return to it momentarily. Um, so can anyone point to another answer that doesn't redefine humility? but does somehow redefine, reread our Gemara. Erwin. Yeah, we have the, um, the Tziva HaKohen, I think you're referring to that one. Um, that has an interesting twist that uh, he says that um, on the contrary, um, he didn't think that he was very humble. He, he thought he was not worthy of any praise and people were praising him. So, uh, the, the reason that he was pointing to himself is that he was an example that if people are already praising him, it means that the generation must be very, consisting of very humble people. Right. Okay, great. Yeah. So, so source number nine on the sheet, and he's quoting his own, his father's interpretation. He says, He saw he was getting a lot of honor. We have a Gemara in Psachim that tells us that, uh, you know, people used to say like, Oh, you know, if not for me, there'd be no Yosefs. Yosef sort of became the term for a great rabbi because of Rav Yosef. So he got a lot of, a lot of honor. And Ach Rav Yosef, mi godol an vasanuso, shehichzikis atmo, shehu eno roi klalichavod. Right, as Erwin said, Rav Yosef thought he was nothing special. So why are all these people giving me honor? Must be everyone else is really humble. Why? Because they're giving me honor. So they must be, they're sort of, you know, they're saying, oh, I'm less than Rav, Rav Yosef. I'm giving him deference and honor. Well, that means they, you know, and, and Rav Yosef thinks they're essentially even, even uh, levels. So they must be that they, you know, they have a lower uh, view of themselves than they otherwise, than they should. And that's humility. That seems to be the reading here, right? So precisely Rav Yosef says, there's me. What does me mean? It doesn't mean I'm humble. It means I, despite being nothing special, get all this honor from people because they have lower, you know, say sort of lower their own self-worth or, or, you know, they're humble in that way, however exactly you're going to define that, and they therefore give me honor, I prove that everyone else is humble. I'm the perfect case to prove that everyone else is humble. So it's similar in some ways to the Spas Emes, that it's not talking about him, it's talking about everyone else, but the word Anna is actually different. It doesn't mean my, me, my generation, it means me as the object of humility rather than the person actually being humble, right? People are being humble at me. That's what Anna means. So a very, a very creative uh, reading by, by this, uh, this Sefer as well. So, uh, and so what do we have so far, right? We have Anna doesn't mean me. It means Mr. Anna. We have 
uh, we have the view that it's not about Rav Yosef, it's about Rav Yosef's generation. And that could be either like the Sfas Emes, that uh, it, we're, the whole Mishnah is talking about generations rather than people, or it could be like the Vitziva Cohen says, that uh, he is treated well by others must be because they themselves are humble. Now, before we jump in to Liz's approach and another approach to redefine humility, there's one, one final approach that does neither of those. That's source number four, the Maharsha. Someone want to give me uh, the two-second version of the Maharsha? Maybe five seconds. Any Maharsha takes? Uh, Yaakov. Sorry, I didn't see you there. Yeah, um, so it just says that, right, normally the Chachamim don't really speak about this way, speak this way about themselves, but when it comes to fixing, like, a mistake in Brighton, they kind of have to, like, just correct correct the error. Yeah, great. Right, so this is, I, I call the bite the bullet shot, right? So he says, Right, rabbis, certainly humble rabbis, it's not, it's not proper to, uh, you know, uh, to recount your praises, let others praise you. You shouldn't praise yourself. You can't, you can't have Torah be false. You can't have a teaching be incorrect. So he, uh, he bit the bullet, right? He was willing to be not humble by saying, I, look at me, I'm humble, in order to make sure that we don't have a Mishnah that's false. And obviously you can raise all sorts of questions about you know, uh, how honest are we with ourselves? You know, should, can't, isn't there a pitfall of someone always saying, you know, uh, you know, Torah will be perverted if I don't praise myself publicly. Isn't that a dangerous approach to take? Sure, those are all valid questions. But for the Maharsha, at the end of the day, we have two values. We have the value of humility. We have the value of truth. And in this case, the value of truth, truth and Torah being true wins out. And one, uh, one needs to say, uh, Rav Yosef felt the need to say, I am humble in order to correct, to correct the, uh, the Mishnah. Okay, so those are, those are four different approaches that all sort of work on the margins. I mean, uh, the Marsha is maybe the, the clearest, right? He says this is not humble, and, and he did it anyway. The other approaches sort of avoid the, the challenge. But then there's two, two uh, approaches here in the sources that redefine what humility is. So Liz uh, helpfully pointed us to one of those. Source number, source number five, the Marome Sadeh, where he draws a contrast. He says, Shif, uh, uh, Anava, Ena Shiflus Halev. Humility doesn't mean like having low self-esteem. That's how I'm translating that. Ella hanhaga adam bigasus. But interacting with other people without coarseness or rudeness. So something like that. So people who aren't humble insult other people, are rude to them, don't take them seriously. People who are humble or who have anava, uh, and this is, again, not our, not our standard definition of humility, a little bit, uh, a little bit different. It's, it's mostly about treating other people well. Right? So that's at least one one redefinition of humility here. And, um, right, and that's why, he quotes the Gemara in Horios, that Rav Yosef would treat himself like one of the students, right? So this is sort of the, the bridge, this, that bridge between humility and treating other people well, which is, you know, if you're a great Torah scholar, you're the Rosh Yeshiva, whatever it is, you might walk around like with airs and say, look, I'm, I'm Rav Yosef, and not treat other people well. But if you sort of treat yourself, you know, uh, you look at yourself, present yourself like one of the people, you know, like anyone else, not putting on airs, not mistreating others. So that's humility. But it's not primarily about self-perception. It's primarily about how one relates to others. Um, so uh, interesting. Yeah, so I see Liz, uh, Liz, you asked, is this also a dig at the Musser movement? Very interesting, right? Because he explicitly says, not like the Masilas Yasharim, you know, the I am nothing approach. I, you know, and there's, we can go tell all the jokes about, you know, who do you think you are to be nothing? We're going we're gonna to just telegraph that. But, um, uh, right, so it could very well be. It seems like, it seems like that makes sense given, given the Maromi Sada's pedigree and, uh, and what's going on at the time and his invocation of the Masilas Yasharim here, probably, right? But this is a view, um, uh, I'd say, famously Lithuanian Talmudists uh, have a reputation of not being overly humble. Uh, not, not saying I am nothing, I'm nothing. And, and that's, that's maybe part of this, right? It's about treating other people well, rather than, uh, than having a false sense of, uh, of, you know, of, of low self-esteem or something like that. So that's the Murome Sada's approach. Reinterpret humility. Humility doesn't mean that you can't, you know, ha you can't say, you know, I'm humble if you actually are humble. Humility is about treating other people well. So there's no real contradiction here. 
um, does someone want to point to the other, the other approach in these sources that redefines humility, or maybe even their own, if they want? Uh, Shira R. Um, just that, like self-awareness and humility are not mutually exclusive, and that was the. Um, uh, I can't have this Zoom open and the page open at the same time, but yeah, that was one of them. And, and what? And just can you say a bit more about self-awareness uh, and humility? How that? Meaning, like you can, like there's like a tzaddik that like recognizes his level. Like you know, kind of where you are. And like, even if you don't walk around touting that, like, that doesn't, that doesn't contradict the fact that like, you are humble, like you still need to know where you are in order to like, be something. Okay. Right, right. So you can be honest about what you're, you know, where you're at, what your spiritual level is, so to speak, without that impeding your humility. Great. And that's, uh, that's source number seven, the Avni Nezer. And uh, we'll just read part of that. Um, and uh, he says, Amnam, Mikol Ela. So Saras Hanava He's talking about someone who, who knows themselves to have uh, whatever qualities. He's saying that knowledge of your own great qualities doesn't contradict humility or even Shivron Lev, right? Even brokenness of heart, which is a little surprising. You might think you might think to distinguish between those two. But he says, no, it's it's a problem for neither. Yada, Right, for example. Oh, wow. My, uh, my visuals are giving some trouble here, but bear with me. I think I'm still here. So uh, he says that, uh, that uh, Moshe is also, is, was also uh, a, great, uh, a, a great person. He did all these miracles. That's pretty clear throughout the Torah. And, uh, and yet, that never stopped him from saying, from writing in the Torah, Moshe, there was no Navi like Moshe. And of course, the Torah also says, that Moshe was anav, mikol ha'adam. Moshe was the most humble. There's no contradiction between saying someone like Moshe did all these miracles and was humble and was the most humble, and there's no contradiction there. Why? Because the point is, as, uh, as Shira told us, if you're actually humble, you can honestly say, I am the best at X and Y, right? Uh, uh, and uh, that wouldn't affect you. Meaning, uh, gaiva, pride, is when, is when, saying things you know that are actually true somehow give you this inflated sense of self that's inaccurate that makes you feel uh feel like you you deserve or you, you are more than you should be you are more than you actually are and he says every person has their own status has their own level that they've achieved you have to be honest with yourself about your level and not inflate it but if you're being honest assuming that's not getting to your head that can still be anava and that's why he says, Rav Yosef himself said, right? Again, he was, apparently it was this line that he used, but it was also common that, you know, how many Yosefs would be out there? How many great Talmud like me would there be out there? But he also says, he says he's the most humble person. He says that he's a great Talmud I mean, there's no contradiction there. He says, you know, that he admits, it does take a little bit of work to figure out how this, how this all shakes out, right? It's not, it's still not fully clear how someone can be, can be humble and great and say they're humble and say they're great and those all can coexist, but he thinks they can. Humility is about having an honest self-assessment, not about saying you're less than you are or, or putting yourself down. And uh, then he ends, uh, Some, you know, there's some tzaddikim are more humble than others. Some tzaddikim are, have a better self-awareness of their spiritual level than others. Rav Yosef happened to be very self-aware, others less so, but there's no contradiction between saying, I'm humble and being humble, or even saying I'm great and being humble, assuming you're being honest and it's not getting to you. So I think there's a lot to think about here. I, I know there's, um, you know, between the Musser movement and, uh, you know, uh, I think even some uh, contemporary literature outside of uh, the Jewish tradition, about, uh, you know, we shouldn't uh, deny our own self-worth. There's a lot, you know, there's much broader discussions to be held here. We're not going to get into all of those, but I think this is helpful that we have, aside from the classic, you know, old school model, you could call it, that humility means putting yourself down, thinking you're less than you should be, which we saw implicit in some of the commentaries. We have two alternatives here. We have the Merome Sada, that it's about treating other people well and not putting them down. And we have, uh, we have the Avne Nezer here, that it's about an honest self-assessment. 
And that's what humility is. And again, it's not simple and the cases don't work out so easily as the Avni Nezer himself says, but these are our various uh, approaches to humility that are worth, are worth thinking about, are worth reflecting on, uh, and I think many have, and, and it's a worthwhile discussion. Before we go forward, I just wanted to open it up. Did anyone have other answers, other approaches that weren't uh, in the sources per se? And I think uh, we heard one earlier. Uh, about uh, about the connections of Moshe. Any, wanted to write from Tvir. I wanted to open it up if anyone has other additional perspectives. Rami. I mean, this goes back to what you were talking about earlier about irony. But is it possible that the Gemara is actually putting this out there to be like to prove its point, being like, look, like humility really did die when Rabbi died because look at this guy saying how humble he is. Like, sort of, there's an ironic thing going on. So humility might have died, but irony didn't, or uh, or humor didn't. Okay, interesting. Um, I guess the challenge with that reading is, first of all, the Gemara sounds very sincere, right? Or Yosef's like, I object to Ikana. But also, like, if Rav Yosef was the one who wanted to, like, if, if you were right, it would be like someone else would be like, hey, look at this. Rav Yosef says he thinks he's humble. Isn't that funny? There's obviously no more humility, right? But like, if it's Rav Yosef saying it himself, it's a little harder. You don't have that, I don't know if you call it comic distance or whatever. Uh, for that to really work as well. But uh, definitely an interesting reading. I think some people say, oh, it's a joke. But I, I, again, I, it doesn't read like a joke. It reads like a, an objection. You know, just because we read it like a joke, we want to impose that on the text. But it's, you know, it's not, I would resist that unless you have a clear indicator or, or something that, that, that would point to that. But yeah, definitely an interesting way of taking it. Um, people also say like, right, that that's a joke. But like, I don't think the people who said it thought it was a joke. Like, you might think it's a joke, but you know, yeah, other, other suggestions, other ideas. Talia. I think to support um, what Rami said, I'm really interested in, in the fact that the Gemara preserves this conversation, um, which I think is a, um, like they could have just said, oh, sorry, Rav Nachman, sorry, Rav Yosef, you're totally right. We, we got confused when we were trying to repeat this Mishnah, and we're just going to take it out. Um, but I think by preserving both opinions and the conversation, they're saying, no, like, no, <laughs> they were wrong. They just, they just had this like funny thing that they wanted to say. And, um, uh, yeah. Interesting. Right. So you're, you're going with the, um, the view of, uh, who was it? The, um, the, what you call it? This fast MS it was, right? Yeah, the Sfas Emes, right? That by keeping in the Mishnah and keeping in this discussion, Rav Yosem and Rav Nachman seem to clearly be wrong. And, uh, and it's worth preserving that teaching to see their view, but they're wrong. And, and, and we're sort of preserving that, right? Yeah, that's interesting. You, you definitely, I mean, that is how the Sfas Emes reads it. You could also read it a different way that maybe they're right. Like they sort of get the last word, right? So the Mishnah, maybe they thought the Mishnah was true, but now we have the Gemara to update us, to fill us in. And I mean, you, you could take it either way, um, that, you know, part of the question is then why don't you edit the Mishnah? And that's the whole question. Like, how much were the Amoraim editing Mishnayos? Is that what they're supposed to be doing? Or they just like comment on it? There's like a whole massive literature on that. So that, that's, you know, that's all a fair question. But yeah, definitely an interesting way of looking at it. Uh, Zoe. It seems like though this is fundamentally reflecting like that none of us know exactly what humility is. And I think this is true of many Midot. I think we don't often know exactly what the Midah is, but we, you know, we say Chesed is good. I think humility, we're told, is good. Like, this, this is diorita good, because we know Moses was the most humble of men. Like, Hashem says that. But now, like, is that sort of self-deprecating and putting yourself down? Or is that something worthy? Like, can I say I'm the most humble person? Is that even a valid statement? So I think we're questioning, like, the entire... I think the fact that we have so many diverse answers shows what a difficult concept this is fundamentally. Totally, yeah. That's a great, a great uh, sort of meta note on this sugya. Yeah. Other, any other thoughts, reflections, answers? Jessica. This might be a bit of a stretch, but it feels like the placement of this is the very end of the Masechet is interesting because we've just been talking, the kind of the whole Masechet is about rituals that we no longer do. Um, and there's a kind of question, especially when it comes to something like Sutta, um, more so than Agra, maybe, of like, you know, is that a good thing? Is that a bad thing? Um, and it feels like this kind of like line in the mission of, you know, ending on this note of sort of, you know, really sort of like Yeri Dahadara, like the going down of the generations and things becoming worse. It feels like kind of this line is potentially pushing back on that saying, 
no, actually, we late MRIM are doing pretty well. It's not as bad as all that. Um, we've actually got a good setup. And you could read it as like, and I think the placement is definitely making you question whether it is a comment on something more general about the potentially even like the Judaism of the late MRIM as opposed to the Judaism of the temple periods. Okay, yeah, great. I, I like that direction a lot. I, I may take a stab at, at developing at least one, one angle on that uh, in a couple minutes. So great, thank you. Uh, yeah, thank you for suggesting that. I think that very well could be what's going on. Um, okay, Micah. Um, I'd like to suggest we read this as a kind of a challenge from Chazal, um, uh, particularly based, like Jessica, like you were saying, at, on its position at the end of this Masechet. Um, we focused, uh, last week we talked about some of the, like, theme, one of the themes of the Masechet being a kind of a, 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 a difficulty we feel in, in Galut and Gullis in terms of being able to, like, have coherent justice to measure precisely and uh, um, Sota and Eglarufa both being sort of things we don't actually have access to anymore. Um, as is sort of this whole list, this whole final Mishnah that brings us to sort of the, the peak kind of corruption of character of uh, our priest and king. Um, and uh, we mourn, I don't know, this, I think, and, and mourn this like list of venerable characteristics that we wish we saw more of in society. Um, it could be a pretty dark note to leave off a Masechet. Um, and in that context, I think our, the kasha, or the objections, um, uh, prove to us that, um, may, I think I'm mostly reading in line with uh, uh, Maharsha, though also the Nitziv, um, uh, that there's a need for us to say, wait, we, we still have Midos. Even, we still have the capacity to cultivate Midos. And through so, through doing so, to, um, like we still have yeshivas in Babylon uh, and Bavel and the um, Hadranalach, and we're going to continue to learn and cultivate midos through that, despite the fact that we have a lot to mourn um, and a lot that we can't be involved in anymore. All right, great, very nice analysis uh, of right again, like a hopeful direction by the Amarim there along along uh, Jessica's lines. Great. Um, any. Any other uh, any other thoughts? Okay, so I, yeah, as I said, I wanted to develop a line of, of thought, maybe in a similar direction to Jessica and Micah. I think I'm in, I'm thinking of this a bit less in the context of Maseches Sota, although it certainly connects overall, um, but more in the context of our Mishnah, of the specific Mishnah, where we saw it started with a discussion of the destruction of the temple, and then it went, moved on to the passing of various rabbis and the loss and, and sort of the responses to that where it's right to, to uh, you know, cancel various forms of celebration, to cancel Greek culture on the one hand. And on the other hand, the loss of the rabbis led to just loss of different character traits. So I think it may help us if we, if we look at another Gemara that talks about the destruction of the temple and the cessation of sacrifice in, in, a, in a different way that also will come back to our themes of Anava and uh, Yeraschet, of humility and fear of sin. And, and to that end, let's, let's take a look at source number 10. Sources, well, really 10 and 11, the Gemara in Gittin, traditionally studied on Tisha B'Av, about, about the destruction of the Mikdash. And 10 is the opening line. What does it mean a person, you know, happy is the person who always fears, one who hardens their heart will fall in bad. And he says it's based on all these stories. It's referring to all these stories we're about to see in the Gemara. Akamsu bar Kamsa, Charav Yerushalayim, the story of Kamsu bar Kamsa. Tarnagol, 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 Turmalka, the destruction of Haramelech, based on a story involving chickens. And Saka the Rivsak, the Rizpak, Charav Betar, the destruction of Betar, based on a bag of, of beads. So there's, there's a whole long discussion. It's multiple dopim of Gemara. If you have downtime next Thursday, when you're not doing the Drisha program, you're all very much invited to study this Gemara. But for our purposes, it's interesting that it's all framed as the destruction of, of the, the Mikdash and Yerushalayim is all framed as based on one who, uh, one who fears. 
somehow fearing God is, is the framing there. Being a fear, I think Rashi there, if I recall, says one who fears God. And well, let's focus on one piece of the story, source number 11. This is uh, partway through the Kamsa Bar Kamsa story. Uh, Bar Kamsa insults Kamsa, Kamsa is very upset. He decides he wants to do in the, uh, he wants to do in not just the, uh, not just the immediate people who did him trouble, but also the rabbis and really the whole Jewish people. Azal Amrleh the Kesar. So Kamsa goes to the Caesar, he says, Marduvach Yudai, the Jews are rebelling. Amrleh Miyimar, who said? Well, why don't you bring them, do a test. Bring them a carbon, see if they're willing to offer it. So he gave a third calf, whatever a third calf means. Apparently it's fancy, fancy calf. As it was going to the Mikdash, as they were bringing it to the temple, uh, so Kamsa put a little cut on its lip. Or cut on its eye, something that would be hard to notice. And also, Something that for Jews, for halacha, is a mum, but within Greco-Roman sacrifice wasn't the problem. So the it wouldn't be understandable to the Caesar why you would cancel this offering just because there's a little cut on its lip or a cut on its eye. Exactly how that works is a whole discussion. We don't need to get into that now. Um, so what do they? So what do you do? Right, you're the rabbis. You get this calf from the emperor. You're supposed to bring it on the but it has a mum, so you're not supposed to bring it. So what do you do? The rabbi said, let's bring it because we want peace with the king. We don't want to have a war here. His response was, If we offer this, people will think you can just bring an animal with a mum. Mums don't matter. So you can't, even if technically we can override the halacha of not bringing a carbon with a mum in order to preserve peace, we, we still have a further consideration of the worry that people will think that you can bring animals with a blemish. Sovereign Lamictalis, so they said, okay, let's kill, let's kill Kamsa so that he won't be able to tell the emperor what happened. We won't have anyone to report back. Well, if we kill, this is the worry of Zechariah Ben If we kill Kamsa, he's not worried about the government being upset or something like that. He's worried that people will think that if you put if you if you put a blemish on a sacrifice, you get killed. That that's the valid pun, that's the proper punishment. And they'll think the wrong thing. This anvasanus, which is sort of a fancy word for anava, this humility, improper humility of Rabbi Zechariah ben Akulus, by him rejecting, he's saying not to, not to offer the animal and not to kill Kamsa, that destroyed our house, destroyed the temple, burnt are uh, burnt the Heichal, the inner part of the Mikdash, and led to our exile. So our downfall is a function of Anvisanus, of Anava, of humility. There's a whole massive discussion. We, I could have given, just like there were like eight readings or six readings, whatever it was, on how it's, uh, how Rabbi Yosef could talk about Anava. There's probably an equal number of readings of how what Rabbi Zechariah ben Akolos did is humility. What does it have to do with humility? Right, him saying, don't bring the offering um, uh, don't bring the offering because it has a mum, and don't kill Kamsa because people will think the wrong thing halachically. How is that humility? It's very odd. So we're not going to go into all those answers, but here's one approach from actually Rav Chaim Kanievsky, which my shir knows um, is our hero because he wrote an entire sefer on Perak Egla Arufa. Um, but also, uh, he also, this is a separate directory he has on the Gemara Gitin that got published here in the Daf Al Daf uh, book, which is on Bar Ilan. So this is, we have access through here. And he says, he says, to understand this, you need to look at a Tosefta in Shabbos. In terms of Muktza laws, if you have shells or bones after you ate food, is that Muktza or not? Beis Shammai says it's Muktza. Uh, you know, Beis Hillel says you can remove it from the table. He would do neither. He would sort of put it behind the bed, maybe indirectly, not wanting to risk uh, doing something that's Muktza. And then we invoke the same line from our Gemara, really weird. Oh, well, that's that anava, that humility, that destroyed our temple. So again, first of all, like, why is it so bad? We'll answer that another time. But why, why is this humility? What's the humility here? And uh, so, so he explains, so uh, explains, what's the relationship between these two Gemaras? They're both about Anvisanus. Kanir'eh. The answer is, 
uh, and uh, interesting coming from Kamkansky, who's you know, a fairly big machmir, but he says you don't always need to be machmir, you don't always need to be stringent. Sometimes people are stringent from a place of improper humility. What do I know? I can't decide this halacha. I, I'll just say, be machmir. I don't want to take the risk of deciding, oh, here, I don't know enough, I'm too humble, so I'll be machmir. And he says, Of course, we'd never accuse Rabbi Zechariah of himself falling by this, uh, falling into this trap, but it happens sometimes. And I think that's presumably how he's reading this Gemara. So he did fall into the trap, right? But, so there's a bridge here. There's a connection here between humility and yiraschet and fear of sin, right? Just like in our Gemara, Rebbe was both humble and fearful of sin. The Gemara in Gittin also talks about Anvasanus, talks about humility, but it's a hum- there is a sort of humility that connects to fear of sin. The two actually relate to one another. And of course, that's what the Gemara's whole framing is, right? It's, you need to have the right amount of mifachet tamid, the right amount of fear, fear of God, fear of sin. That's what's important. If you have the wrong balance of that, bad things will happen. There's Chayyim Avkulos had a little too much on Vesanus, had a little too much fear of, of sin, a little too little uh, self-assurance that he could r- rule leniently in various cases, and that was his downfall. So I think this, this connects between the two qualities of Rebbe, which is important. But I think also this, this puts the broader issue in, in a new perspective. It casts it in a new light, because if we think about it, Rebbe, of course, represents uh, Chazal maybe more than anyone else, and he was the, the prototypical Yerechet and, uh, and Anav, right? He was the most humble, he was the most fearing of sin. If we think about what happens with the, with the Hurban, with the destruction of the temple, you have Greco-Roman armies and Greco-Roman culture overtaking the Jewish culture, in a sense. You have the destruction of the Mikdash, the ending of sacrifice, right? If sacrifice, uh, if it's not culture, it's uh, cultus. It's definitely some form of, of culture. It's religious culture. And that was ended in two different Gemaras in two different ways, right? Either by sending the pig or by sending the Baal Mum. And if you're not, if you, and if you follow the rules, you end up in trouble. You end up, the whole system gets exploded. And maybe there's some ways of, you know, some ways that it's right to, to uh, not bring the carbon when it's when it has a moment, time when, it, when you should bring it anyway. But that's the tension. That's the the fight. The fight is between Greco-Roman culture with their power and trying to enforce a certain vision on on Jewish culture, and on the other hand, the Jews trying to stand up for what they believe in, trying to stand up for their carbonos, and also trying to stand up for all of their qualities. And I think building on what Jessica and Micah said, I think in the Mishnah we see there's not only a decline in the destruction of the Mikdash that leads to all these xeros, that leads to all these different ways of, of uh, re- decreasing happiness that we mark this time of year. But there's also a decline in the midos, in the different personal qualities of all these rabbis. And it's not a coincidence that this all happens now. It all happens after, right around and after the destruction of the temple, when Greco-Roman culture is being imposed, in, as it were, over, over Jewish culture. And the crescendo of that is anava and yiraschet are lost. And again, those may be those may be the greatest, in some ways, the greatest uh, of, of the Jewish qualities, the idea of, of fearing sin or following halacha overall, right? Of following a hard, hard set of rules and doing so with anava, maybe humility towards, not only towards other people, but towards God, of being able to say God is great and above and I'm a mere anav. And to think of it in that way, those are central Jewish qualities. I included a piece from Matthew Arnold's Hebraism and Hellenism. For a couple of reasons, it is a little old-fashioned and maybe a little, uh, little overgeneralizing. But uh, first of all, my uh, my Rebbe Rav Lichtenstein used to quote this article, so you always want to keep the Masora going. And it's it's at least at the very least a helpful shortcut or heuristic uh, to some of the differences between Jewish and Hellenic color, culture. And uh, just to select a few lines from from that piece from Source 13, he says both in his view, both Hellenism and Hebraism are spiritual disciplines. They aim at man's perfection but they do so in very different ways. He says the uppermost idea with Hellenism is to see things as they really are. Presumably that's the idea of the, the, the ideas and uh, you know, everything should aspire for its, for its purpose uh, and its, uh, its uh, telos. And uh, the uppermost idea with Hebraism is conduct and obedience. If I had to say conduct and obedience in Hebrew, I might say humility towards God and fear of sin as a, as a result. Whereas Greek culture, 
is about presenting things in their greatest form, having things represent flourishing, the human body, the Olympics, uh, wisdom, philosophy. It's about, it's not about meekness towards some other power. It's about building up humans as much as possible for a sense of flourishing. And that's why he says they both, both uh, Hellenism and Hebraism, uh, they both uh, have a quarrel with physicality. The Greek quarrel is that they hinder right thinking. Right? So you want to optimize your body only to the extent that it doesn't, it doesn't stop you from optimizing your thinking. The Hebrew quarrel with them is that they hinder right acting. It's about action. It's about halacha. It's about following the proper law. It's about yiras chet. And uh, again, the governing idea of Hellenism is spontaneity of consciousness. The, that of Hebraism, strictness of conscience. Strictness of conscience, I might translate, anvisanus. Right, that's close. maybe took it too far. Rebbe had the right balance. Rebbe was the perfect anav and the perfect yurechet. And I think what our Gemara is doing is it's saying, it's looking at the Mishnah. The Mishnah points to a period of massive decline. Decline in the loss of Mikdash, decline in the loss of culture. As those remnants of the Jewish culture, when they actually controlled their own destiny, were slowly being lost, as different rabbis, different chachamim were passing away, there is a real fear, there's a real worry that this is the end that this is the end of Jewish culture overall. And the Gemara, by objecting in these cases and in others and saying, wait, there still are some people out there who are living these values. And it doesn't mean that Rav Yosef was the greatest Anav ever. And it's not really about Rav Yosef. It's not about himself. It's about the broader Jewish culture still being preserved in, in a world without a temple, a world without a mikdash, a world where Jewish culture is being overwhelmed by the ambient culture, by the Greco-Roman culture that, that controlled the area. And so I think maybe we can read this, the end of humility and the rebirth of humility, the reclaiming of humility by Rav Yosef and the reclaiming of Yerashchit uh, by Rav Nachman is a way of saying, we are preserving our, our Jewish culture. We're doing what we can to preserve a halachic, a halachic culture, to preserve a modus vivendi, a way of life, even amidst these crises. And while we're mourning for the Mikdash and there are all these xeros, and there's all these things that we lack. We actually, the way to build, the way to move forward is to take stock of what we have, to believe in uh, our, own, our, our own culture. And of course, not to the exclusion of taking positive things where they lie, but, but, uh, but to, to double down really on, on Jewish culture, on, at least for these purposes, on Nava and Yerashchet, among other values, and to build forward to hopefully be in a place where uh, there can be a broader restoration, and uh, that would be you know, the response, the full response to the Mishnah would be the restoration, not only of these personal qualities, but also of the Beis HaMikdash itself. So I guess we, we may have a minute or two for questions now, if people have them. Um, happy to take uh, questions, other views, disputes. But that's at least one reading, I think, of, of, this, uh, of this Gemara. And if, if I don't see your hand, just call out because it's hard to monitor a lot of people. If not, that's also okay. Shira R? Yeah. Um, I mean, it's more of like a thought than anything else. But just like the idea that we were saying in like, in the Avni Nezer about how like Anava is about sense of self, I think like you can also kind of read that into the second Gemara of like it it was it, it, he had like overly was like involved in like his sense of self and like his own internal like concept of halacha and like not thinking in the broad. And I think like in that way, Anava was also the downfall. Interesting. So too much, if anava means having a sense of self, too much anava means thinking too much about your own strictures, your own categories, instead of thinking about the qual. Interesting reading. Nice. Okay, last call. I, I think that uh, also a kind of cool thing is about... Um, the, we, we take the Anavut uh, of later of the story of Bar Kamsa, but if we go earlier into the story of Bar Kamsa, I think there's a parallel to the idea of Egla Rufa of 
um, how the community didn't think about, or even with like the death of Barkamsa, one person's death and one person's life and embarrassing one person within your community is enough to have unraveled the destruction of the entire community and how like the, there's a, like a, 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 a weave, a, in every, every individual within the community is interwoven in, in our uh, um, accountability for their well, well-being. For sure, yeah, that's another important theme. Thank you, yeah. Okay, if there's no other uh, comments. Thank you, Anyasha Kawach, uh, for a really, really wonderful share. Okay. Thanks, Roshama. Thank you. Thank you all. Thank you. Thank you, Thank you. Thank you.